0: You are listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. This week we're talking about a novel on our second year syllabus, a novel which has seen a rise in popularity in the past year with the inauguration and first year of the presidency of Donald Trump. The novel, 1984, was published in 1949 and almost 70 years later still has a cautionary message to convey. Today we're going to talk about the prevailing relevance of George Orwell's 1984, and especially the character of Winston Smith at the heart of the novel. My name is Dr. Jenny O'Connor, a lecturer of English at WIT, and I'm joined today by another of my kind, Dr. Krista Debrune. I think that makes us sound kind of like superheroes, or that we've got some common plague, something other, or something <laughs> of the like. Anyway, Krista, um, also a lecturer in English, is the reason why I'm saying she's one of my kind. Anyway, um, in studio two are Brandon Collins hello. and hello there, and Ashling O'Byrne. Hello. Hi, Ashling, um, who have all. Just begun studying 1984 as part of their module Literature and Society, so I'm really throwing them in at the deep end here. Um, Okay, so just a little bit of an overview of the plot. Um, Most people would probably know what 1984 is about, but in a dystopian future that's ruled by a totalitarian regime uh, known as the party. we find Winston Smith. Uh, There are three tiers in society. There's the inner party, the outer party and the proletariat. Winston Smith is a member of the outer party and works in the Ministry of Truth, rewriting history designed basically to keep the proletariat and the public from questioning anything that the ruling class does, the ruling party. Um, He begins a diary, which is forbidden, and this leads him to begin to question the system under which he is living. These new questions connect him to Julia, who encourages him to think and act more freely. And he discovers a brotherhood of resistance and for the first time thinks about rebelling against the party, really. Um, so I suppose, first of all, I want your kind of personal reactions to the book, because we've started talking only this week about the book. Um, Brandon, you know, did you read the book for the first time in preparation for this module or had you read it before?
1: No, I've read it, good Lord, now a couple yonks ago when I was younger, I'd read it and but it was the first time rereading it in a very long time and there was a lot i didn't quite grasp when i was younger yes it's a very deep book i didn't know what communism was you know i didn't know totalitarianism socialism i just thought this is a horrible book let's hope the world never turns out this way yes yes but there's a lot there's a lot underneath the surface that you can scratch away at even even at the surface level it's very plain and clear that there's a lot going on in this novel yeah it's very complex and there's a lot of thought and and a forewarning, a portent to to the dangers of of complete governmental dominance of society.
0: Yes, it is. It's a chilling book in so many ways. What about you, Ashley? Had you read it before?
2: Yeah, I read it before. I read it a few years ago as well, and I reread it last year. Yeah. And Did you have then, a different reaction to it the second time? No, because I'm really really into history, so yes. I had read up on sort of communism, and I was very aware of all the totalitarian governments that had happened. So I didn't. I don't think I had a different reaction. It just felt more relevant last year yeah, because of what was happening in the world and with Donald Trump and the whole sort of fake news and alternative facts going on. It felt a lot more.
0: It really does, doesn't it?
2: Um, Krista, what about you? I mean,
0: you know, you probably read it... Did you read it a long time ago? or I've
3: read it a few times now, but I have to say, never has the world seemed so Orwellian. So reading it now, it's it's eerily, you know, relevant even though... um, Orwell died in 1950, but, you know, nearly 70 years later, the book is still as
0: relevant as ever. Yeah. Why do you think um, Orwell wrote so many political novels?
3: Well, I think this is a very clear intention on Orwell's part. So uh, one thing that's really interesting to read um, alongside maybe a reading of the novel. So the novel's written in 1949, but Orwell wrote an essay called Why I Write, In 1946 and in this essay um, he outlines why he became a political writer and it's a very um, clear aim for him so you know he outlines in the essay that he aimed to make political writing into an art Um, and he indeed he says that the opinion that art should have nothing to do with politics is itself a political attitude and he goes on to tell us that, you know, he had a turning point himself in 1936. So this was uh, during the Spanish Civil War in th- 1936 to 1937. Also, he had spent five years as an imperial police officer in Burma, which uh, didn't suit him at all. But he got to see, I suppose, how imperial systems work and so on. And he said that every line of serious work that I've written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly uh, against totalitarianism. And for democratic socialism, as I understand it.
0: Yes. Yeah. The as I understand it part is important, isn't it? Because I suppose the fact that it's totalitarianist socialism that he represents in the book is something that we were talking about in class. And he's he's interested in in showing how all political systems are open to corruption, really. He, you know, socialism isn't isn't safe by any any stretch. Um, So it's not just fascist regimes we're talking about here. Um, And that's why I suppose when we look at the character of Winston in the book, it is possible to see Winston as a version of Orwell himself in a way, you know, Um, because we have been talking in, in class about whether Winston is himself a bit of a bad guy, even though maybe he doesn't seem to be or he doesn't he doesn't see himself as one he it's maybe subconscious maybe um of course you can read winston in a very different way so traditionally The novel has been seen as kind of the oppression of Winston by the party, if you like, Uh, the kind of crushing defeat of idealism by totalitarianism. Uh, But we have been talking about the complicity of Winston in this process we were just talking about it the other day. What do you think of Winston, Ashling, as a character? Um, Do you see him as a version of Orwell? Do you see him as an everyman? Do you see him as yourself? You know, who does he represent? What is he? What's he about, do you think?
2: I find Winston quite hard to pin down as a character. Mm. There's a lot of questions about who he is as a character. And I mean, you can empathise with him in a certain way, but there's times when he's quite cold and he doesn't really view um, sort of people below him as he tends to kind of follow the party line in that sense, I suppose.
0: Yes, that there's an elitism about
2: him. Yeah. But I don't know if he's aware that he has that elitist mindset because he has grown up as part of the middle class. Yes. So I think it might be a subconscious thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't really, I don't really know what to make of Winston as a character. I find you, him quite.
0: Yeah, he, he's he's kind of there's an ambivalence about him. I mean, do you feel that the more. Uh, oppressive the situation becomes around him so you know by the time he gets to room 101 for example that you are far more likely just to have empathy because he's a human being going through this he could be anybody at this point couldn't he yeah like up to then in his relationship with julia do you think you know do you think he behaves in a way that you can connect with what about you, Brandon? Do you think like that relationship is really interesting, isn't it? Because especially the the "I love you" note passed from one person to another, between strangers essentially, is such a strange and unique chat up line. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's that that really begins Winston's character because beforehand he's the white collar rebel, yeah, uh, and and that's an extension of himself. He he could be any white collar worker. He's selfish. He cares about himself. He sees the pros as beneath him. Yeah, but it's when Julia really wakes him up to the reality of love because he's very he's very unsympathetic at the beginning. Mm. He's, he's staring at Julia during the two minutes of hatred and he's all these sexual frustrations are coming out in in dreams of murder. He wants to slit her throat and bathe in her blood and all these horrible horrible things. but once she passes him the note his whole world is turned upside down and he he begins this this tumultuous fall into a different character into a, into a into a person almost from a from a cog in a machine into a human being, yeah. which which culminates in uh, his fears being realised and it, it doesn't end too well for him overall.
0: Yeah. And it's so interesting that, isn't it? This idea that this notion that he's kind of fantasising about doing these horrendous things to her. And, and then there's this flip. It's like love and hate are just two sides of the very same coin or that there's a very narrow line between the two of them and that, you know, something very small can spark either of those things off um, so that he's encouraged in those two minutes of hatred to express all this frustration and venom and that that you know, these are the emotions that you're allowed to have because actually you're not allowed to express love. So when you're not allowed to express love then maybe that is the only expression that's available to you but yeah, the relationship between them is, is just so, so interesting I think. Um, and you came up with something there in the middle of that that really sparked a thought in my head that is now gone, unfortunately, but I'm sure it'll <laughs> come back in a minute. Um, so, yeah, actually, it was the white collar. It was the white collar character, actually, because, you know, we were talking about um, in class about the fact that Winston is this kind of white collar worker and that you have this uh, impossibility of the middle class hero, something that uh, a guy called Resh has written about, and the fact that he is kind of sandwiched between the inner party and the proletariat means that he's kind of in an impossible position. Firstly, because of the number of people that he has to share this group with. Um, so, if we think about the breakdown of of the numbers, we have there's two percent in the inner party, there's thirteen percent in the outer outer party, and the rest is the proletariat, eighty five percent. So, so he says that a hope lies in the proles. And maybe that's because there's just so many of them that if they were to to, to stage an uprising, then there would be no way of stopping them. Whereas he is in, uh, you know, he has 13 percent of people available to him, all of which are individuals looking out for themselves. Do you know this individualistic thing that you were saying? It really made me think of all of the people who sit in offices every day or all of us who go to work and go about our daily business and say, well, that has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Like When, we, when we're when we thinking about the, the context of why this book is so relevant now, I think Trump has really capitalised on that idea that we are kind of all more interested in making our own lives better than making the, the lives better for everybody else or, or the people who are below us, beneath us, who have less than us. Isn't that, oh, it's kind of depressing. But there is something that's, it, it's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination, but like, it seems kind of new all of a sudden, all over again, doesn't it?
1: Especially during the time of the World War, because you can go back to um, the thirties and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. It's very similar where the, the population is seduced into passivity and lethargy by drugs and information, and they're also self-centered and self-concerned that they don't care for the, for the plight of the, of the society. Yeah. And they're and they're all turned inward to the individual.
0: Yes, exactly. And it's about like not looking at the people who need who are the most vulnerable. That actually that's too difficult to look at really. And so instead you look to yourself, you know? And I think that's what Winston, you know, that's what you were saying, Ashley. That's kind of what Winston is guilty of, isn't it? And it's hard to connect with somebody like that. And yet all we have to do is look in the mirror. We've all got a little bit of that in us. I think it's a very clever character portrayal that, you know, and it keeps revealing layers upon layer upon layers, like an onion. Um Okay, so we were talking about that love affair between Winston and Julia. And it struck me that in the love affair, maybe that's where hope really lies. Why do you think that is? Why do you think hope really lies? I know anybody can come in here, chime in, jump in. But is there a reason, like, you know, as we said, love and hate are kind of almost you know, two sides of the same coin here. One can very easily become the other in an instant. And, you know, we, it talks about children turning on their parents, you know, people turning on each other and dobbing and, and each other in to the thought police all the time. Um. So, you know, that sense of loyalty to, to people isn't there. Um, what is Um. it about this love affair that really is so important? And is it as important to Winston as? or is it as important to Julie as it is to Winston, do you think?
2: I think the love affair is hopeful because it's they're in a society that represses kind of um, emotions and loyalty to anything but the party. And the fact that two people could still um, find love with each other suggests that you can't repress human emotions that much. Hmm. I think that's where the hope lies. But I think Winston is a lot more involved in it than Julia is. Julia is much more just involved in the sexual aspect of it, I think. Yeah, the sexual
0: aspect is really interesting, isn't it? Because for her, that's the real rebellion, isn't it? Um, so we might get to that in a second. But what do, what do you think, Brandon, about that love story between them? It's so interesting, isn't it, the way that he talks about love in inverted commas, because it's a very kind of, <laughs> I don't know, it's a very scientific or technological way of talking about it. It's very kind of, he breaks it down into, into language that you wouldn't associate with love as we know it, romantic love.
1: Yeah, it's their whole language, their whole lexicon is repressed, isn't it? Yeah. And as is their love. It's not a because the only love they know throughout their lives is the fearful obedience to Big Brother. You know, we love Big Brother. It's one of the final lines in the book. He loved yeah. Big Brother and through his expression of it's not even real love. It's just sexual desire and lust that grows into love over time. But it's, a, it's an act of rebellion in itself to love something other than the party, to love another person, to breed loyalty and and respect and self-respect for others and yourself. And it's just individualism is rebellion against the party.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think something as well that we will be talking about in class, but something that is really important is that sexual aspect of their love as a kind of an act of rebellion, that sex becomes this rebellious act and the idea that your bodily autonomy is something that's reclaimed so that you can kind of take your body back from them and act in a way that isn't sanctioned and that through that then, you know, you, it's the ultimate kind of two fingers up to the party, really. Um, Krista, we were talking about language there. Um Language is just so important, isn't it, to to the novel, um, and it's something that Orwell as well has has outlined. I mean, I love you know that essay that he wrote, um, Politics and the English Language. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anybody has read it, but it's really interesting. He lays out. I just I just love the way he talks about language in it because he says, um, you know that. English culture is declining but so is English language and there he puts he lays out rules for writing like you know don't don't use a long word when a short word will do and don't use metaphor because it becomes cliche and all this kind of stuff and it's really it's all stuff that actually he's kind of guilty of himself but what if you are working in an institution of any kind or you know, if you're an academic, you look at the list of rules and you go, God, actually, I do that. I do do that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Thank you, Orwell, for reminding me. Um, But, you know, you can see through that essay and through this novel that he is extremely preoccupied with the role of language in society, isn't he? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What do you
3: think? Um, I mean, what I love about looking at Orwell is how much background information he gives us because it's very Mm. easy then as a researcher or as a reader to understand his motives. Um, So actually in the essay Why I Write, he talks about fusing um, aesthetic and political purpose in the novel. And, you know, he outlines again some rules, four great motives for writing. um, Sheer egoism or desire to be clever or be remembered. um, Aesthetic enthusiasm, that delight in the beauty of words and their correct arrangement. And he does delight in it. It's so true, isn't
0: it? You know, when you write something and you go, (gasps) oh, I don't think I could have put it better myself. And you're, you're, But there is a joy in it, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Um,
3: and, you know, we see that in, in his
0: writing and particularly in his draft work,
3: actually. A lot of that has been uncovered quite recently and he really laboured over the words and he talks about writing as a laborious process. Um, but, you know, what's interesting for us is that he, he also talks about an historical impulse or um, a desire to record things for posterity and perhaps most importantly a political purpose You know, and desire to really alter people's understanding of the society they live in. And I think this is what he did in 1984. I mean, to me, the most powerful aspect of the novel is the way in which Orwell shows us um, how language can be used politically to deceive and manipulate people. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, with the ultimate, you know, conclusion being the destruction of individual will and imagination as people mindlessly accept all propaganda as reality. Yes. You know, and
0: it's, it's the new speak i mean is just yeah so new speak the language that um replaces old speak it, it
3: facilitates deception and manipulation by um, cutting the language down to the bone as he says in the novel so that in the end you know, the idea of a thought crime for example becomes literally impossible because there'll actually be uh, no words uh, in which to express it you yes. know yes um and really from the very first line of the novel we're introduced to the, the power of language. So it was a bright cold day in April and the, the clocks were striking 13. It's, yeah. it's an eerie line, isn't it? Isn't and it it's iconic t- we all remember it because it immediately defamiliarizes the reader. You read and think, yeah, day in April, clocks were striking, oh, 13, yeah. you know, and it destabilises us. And, you know, Hannah Arendt argues in the origins of totalitarianism that one of the ways in which such regimes um, ensure continued domination of their subjects is by the manipulation of their relation to time. Yes. And, you know, the language um, indicates this to us in, in the first line. You know, in Winston, you know, does not know with any certainty that this was 1984 because it was never possible to pin a, down any date uh, within a year or two. I know. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so it's a, and like the relationship of time and to language as well. You know, this this idea that you it's, it's suddenly all of the, the the things that marked your day
2: mm.
0: start to be eroded and the memories that marked your life, they get, they become eroded. And anyway, even if you had those memories, you would have no language in which to describe those memories. So, you know, all power that you have as an individual autonomous creature starts to become, you know, just eroded, eroded eaten yeah. away at. Um, and it's, I think that's the bleakness of the whole thing, isn't it? It's this notion that, you, yeah, yeah, that we just don't have anything that we can that we can point to to say, this is who I am. This is how I identify myself in the world, you know. Well, it's potentially very bleak in that, you know, Orwell shows us how language
3: shapes our sense of reality. And, you know, what we see is Philip Rav observes is that language is one of the key instruments of political domination, that mm. insidious means of the totalitarian control of reality. Um, so usually when we think of language, we think of it as something that expands our horizons or um, improves our understanding of the world. And we see, you know, the exact opposite handi- happening in the novel, as Orwell shows, us that language can just as easily be used as a plot against consciousness. Yes. Um, but I don't think it's hopeless. And I think one thing that's really interesting about the novel is when you come to the end of the novel and in the addendum, you know, the, the principles of um,
0: newspeak. Yes. You know, Isn't, yeah. yeah, I really the end like, the like novel, that part of the it novel. Is. Yeah. Except when you read it first, for the very first time, and you don't know that it's coming, you get to the end and you go, oh my God, that's a terrible ending, poor Winston kind of thing. <laughs> and then you go, what the hell is this? And it starts to detail, the, you know, the A, B and C, uh, you know, what you call them, the the... The vocabulary is kind of yeah. the, the strains of language, basically, um, the categories. And, and you, you know, you're trying to make sense. How does this fit with what I've just read? And you have this paradox and when you think about it for, for long, a longer period of time, you kind of think, well, is this the hope that is that it is offered to us at the end? What did you think when you got to the appendix? What did you guys think when you read it um, that the appendix was about, that it signified?
1: The magic of past tense.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's all written in past tense. The party was, Newspeak was. Yes. So it does give hope for the future. But on the other hand, we've we've already been exposed to Goldstein's manifesto, which yeah. itself was falsified by, well, according to O'Brien, he was he was one of the many authors. So it could as easily be, you know, manufactured by the party for flyers to give out to potential rebels to fool them into coming into... Yes, could yeah, many, it could many be many many interpretations.
0: I mean, if it's not that, and if the party has fallen, then the questions the question arises: Well, what could have happened to the party in the meantime? You know what I mean? Um, is it just is the whole book just an archive of nineteen eighty four that that you know we're looking at from the future and and you know Goldstein's treaties a part our treatises a part of that and the only thing that we can trust from that is the appendix? Or is the appendix part of that archive that is also written by the party? Oh, it's all these juicy questions, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, the, the thing that the appendix offers us, if it doesn't offer us hope, ultimately, depending on where you come down on it, I suppose it does offer us some sense of hope for language. You know, um, the idea that you are talking about Newspeak in the past tense and that you have the language with which to talk about Newspeak and the way that Newspeak used to function, that hopefully that there is, that that sense of language is retained. I don't know. What do you think, Ashley? Maybe you've got a different reading on it.
2: Um. No, I... Always read the appendix as that sort of um light at the end of the tunnel that it does. so language does survive, and the party is in the past tense for me. when I read the appendix, it's um, in some way, the party has been eradicated, I suppose. How do you think it could have been eradicated? So like what are the possible what are the possibilities? What could have happened? The appendix to me suggests that language itself eradicated it because um, he does talk about how the difficulty of translating literature, mm. old speak literature, is what caused it to come about, in particular, the Declaration of Independence.
0: Yes. That's really interesting they couldn't
2: Yeah, and translate that into new speak. And I think that was the beginning of the end. Yes, there's a bit actually
0: which really reminds me about that in that essay by Orwell, the politics and the English language essay, because he tries to translate, I think it's a passage from the Bible. I think I could be getting that wrong now, but I think it's a passage from the Bible that he tries to convert into kind of modern language. And you can see that the message that it's quite a kind of lyrical message that's put forward in this passage from the Bible. And it's all lost when you convert it into this modern language in this very dry way of kind of describing what it is that they're talking about. and you can see that he kind of tries. He does the same thing in that appendix with the with um, the Declaration of Independence. That there are some things that you cannot reduce. There are some things that are a kernel of resistance. Um, and that yeah, that maybe that's it. Maybe that it's it's language itself that caused the downfall of the party. Wouldn't that be a nice idea? I like the idea of that. Um, I suppose you know the other thing is maybe the proles rise up ultimately. I don't know. Maybe or maybe. Maybe the war completely eradicates everybody in Oceania. Uh, Maybe there is a real war that kind of, you know what I mean? Maybe that everybody is is killed. Um, I don't know. I was trying to, I was coming up with, you know, these kind of fantasy versions of what happens. Happier ending than the
1: original ending of the book anyway. Everyone dies instead of brainwashed, you know? Free will and death.
0: Yes. Sorry, go on, Christian. Um,
3: I think it's important that it ends as it does because the novel as it stands alone serves as a really powerful warning that, you know, if totalitarian regimes persist, this is the teleological conclusion of that um, regime. But um, the principles of newspeak suggests that big brother was eventually defeated because it was too difficult to translate oldspeak to to newspeak as we said and i think really what orwell is saying is that as long as we have you know an expansive system of language we have freedom and yes. when we have freedom we have the possibility of dissent Yeah, and that's ultimately what redeems us yes. and you know reclaims the the power of
0: language in the novel yeah it's true yeah i mean that's that's definitely what we want to believe, don't we? The other... Sorry, Brendan, yeah. It's just interesting. In it there.
1: puts, uh, thematically, it puts the reader in the same place as Winston was reading Goldstein's manual. Yeah. Because we ourselves, it's presented to us as truth in past tense that Big Brother was defeated by the the rise of language and the reinvigoration. But... Was it really? The, this whole book is such a downer. Like, would, it, would it really end on that kind of little, little twinkle of a nice little note? I know. Just, may, maybe, just maybe it is fabricated. Well,
0: he's probably saying, turn on the TV. It's still happening. Yeah.
1: Here we are. Look Here outside. we are.
0: Yeah. I mean, that whole thing, you know, we touched on this notion as well about the impossibility of the working class hero the other day and about. I kind of ended the class going, Well, maybe Winston does need to be neutralized then because Ryan, uh, in our class, Ryan Wall, hello, hope you're listening, um, made this really great point about um about Julia. And he said, Well, doesn't Winston condemn Julia the minute that he, he brings her into that room with O'Brien, um, you know, and they and they read the treatise. So isn't isn't he the cause of her death? And, you know, whether it's subconscious or not, he is the one who, who brings about her downfall. Um, and you kind of see that what Orwell is doing is actually saying the individual in, in pursuing an individualistic uh, agenda is, is dangerous, that unless you're doing something for the collective, unless you are actually trying to cause an uprising to make things better for everybody, then maybe you are part of the problem because all uprisings, you know, and he's probably directly referring to to socialist uprisings that he saw himself and was part of maybe, um, part of in some way at least, that they are open to corruption too and that unless you have the will of the entire people behind you, that maybe you are the one who's going to turn into a a dictator yourself. (laughs) Maybe Winston, maybe that was Winston's fate. Um, I don't know. Again, a kind of a an off the wall uh, idea in a sense, but that that maybe there is an inevitability to the fact that he ends up there, that it was never, ever going to be any other way because of where he starts from, because he's in the middle. but He's sandwiched in the middle between those two places, you know. Um, I don't know. His intentions
1: are wrong from the beginning, aren't they? They're all selfish and self-centered from the moment he begins writing in this little lovely cream little book, because it must be. There's no greater cause. It's just it's so beautiful. It must be written It's. it's not for the pros. It's not it's not yeah. for the greater good of society. He's just doing it for the sake of it.
0: Yeah, he's doing it for the sake of it. He's doing it for what he feels is the truth as well. You know, this notion of I need to find the truth, I need to find the truth. Who is he finding it for? Like, Julia has a very different idea from him as to what the point of truth is, doesn't she? Like she's saying, well, what's we don't we, it, it doesn't matter why this was done. The fact is that it was done. And she's right. You know, that's the thing that needs to be upturned. It's not uh, the search for truth is kind of futile. And and ultimately it is futile because he finds out that the reason that all these things happen is because people are searching for power for its own sake, ultimately. um, so that Maybe it's it's you know when you start to think about more about the collective about the good of society that then you've got something that you can work from. It's really interesting. Um, okay. We've actually reached the end of our time, would you believe? This time flies, doesn't wow, that it? absolutely flew. Yeah, yeah, it flies and you're having fun. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much uh, for joining me, Krista de Bruyne and Brandon Collins and Ashling O'Byrne. It's really good to have you here and hopefully we will see you again.
2: Thanks, Jenny. All the best. Thank you.